Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to a brand new DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you're all doing well and thank you as always for being here. It's great to have you along for a bit of F1 chat and discussion and welcome back to the third episode in our Assessing Red Bull's Challenges for 2024 series, a mini series of course that we review and look ahead to 2024 and assess the potential challenges to Red Bull. Of course we have done McLaren, we've done Aston Martin and now we turn to Mercedes, a team that I think has a pretty good chance of being the leading challenger to Red Bull. But of course, we'll assess their credentials for 2024 and of course, look back on why things have not gone well in 2022 and 2023. And we have an excellent guest joining us on this episode of the podcast. He is the editor-in-chief for We Are The Race and most importantly, for me personally, my absolute favourite host of my favourite podcast, the Bring Back the V10s podcast. We've got Glenn Freeman joining us. Glenn, hello to you. How are you? And thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, I'm very good and even better after that intro. Uh, talking me up. Appreciate that. And uh, oh, glad, glad you like the V10 stuff as well. Obviously, we're here today to talk about the current stuff. Um, but yeah, always good uh, to take a look back and, and to hear from a, a listener to our show. So thank you. No, much, much obliged, of course. And uh, I mean, I was very much uh, a V10 F1 baby growing up. So obviously going to have a bit of a bias to that. But no, I absolutely love the show. So it's great to have you along for me personally. First question before we get into the subject of Mercedes. Obviously, this is going out on Monday. So it would have been a few days following the news that uh, Alpha Tauri, formerly Alpha Tauri, had been rebranded as Visa Cash at Red Bull. Don't think anyone's going to get used to saying that. Um, what are your original thoughts on that one, or should we refer to them as V-Carb now? Well, apparently they might be calling themselves V-Carb, uh, which is, well, it's all terrible. And any combination that they try to come up with around that name is awful. Even if you took all of the sponsorship branding away, that obviously the only thing in there that isn't a sponsor really is RB, and you can't call Red Bull's second team RB, because some people call the first team RBR, so... Uh, but that's deliberate. You know, they've removed all all branding, so you kind of have no choice but to use um, the sponsor. If you look at <clears throat> Sauber, they're trying to be stake, but I think Sauber's still on the entry list in some way. So anyone who doesn't want to use the sponsor there can just go Sauber. It'd be a bit weird to keep calling this team Alpha Tauri because they've removed that entirely, and they only had that identity for what was it four years. Um, so it's it's very deliberate. It's a cash in. And I think the, the key difference between those two teams that I mentioned there is that the stake Sauber thing is temporary. We know that's going to be Audi in a couple of years. So, yes, this is a cash-in, but it's a short-term one. We don't know what the plan is longer term for, I don't know, what should we call it, a Red Bull 2? Um, I think and, that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so this could go on 
this could go on for indefinitely. They could, every time a sponsorship deal ends, they might just pick up another one and rename the team again. So it's, it's concerning. And for me, one of the things that really bothers me is we have these 10 teams effectively telling Andretti uh, that they're not allowed in because, you know, F1 wants to protect its 10 franchises, the ones who rode out the COVID storm. Uh, and, that they're, they're, you know, these 10 entities are really important. They have to be protected. Well, if, if you don't care what your brand's called, what, why is your franchise important? And it, 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 it just suggests that uh, the naming of your team is just another way to make money now. And I don't, I don't think that's a good move. No, I very much agree with that one. And uh, as much as I would love to discuss on that topic, because I think if Andretti do get knocked back, and I'm hoping they don't, but we know F1 for now, and we know that F1 and the FIA don't always see eye to eye, very rarely they see eye to eye, actually. There is a likelihood that that may happen. And if it does, I'm happy to, more than happy, actually, to invite you back to scrutinise <laughs> teams like Visa Cash App, Red Bull and Stake and the rest of them to say, well, you know, you guys aren't taking it seriously. You're just being cash cows. Why can't you let Andretti in and have some fun as well? But uh, we'll have to talk about Mercedes because that's, of course, what we promised the listeners, of course. Um, and on the subject of Mercedes, I think first things first, we have to assess how things went down in 2023. They came second in the Constructors' Championship, narrowly picked Ferrari to that second place. On the basis of how 2023 went down and how we probably would have assessed the cars if we were to establish a pecking order of their competitiveness throughout the season, you'd say Mercedes probably outperformed a little bit of where we expected them to be. They probably should have been third, um, but they managed to pick Ferrari. Would Mercedes, however, consider that a relative success? Because this is a team that is used to winning championships and they've very much been further away from doing that than they probably ever have been since they came back to the sport. Yeah, they definitely didn't consider last year a success. And actually, so much of their rhetoric was so negative about last season. They actually faced some criticism from people going, hang on, you still finished second in the championship. But as you kind of outlined there, it was second really through doing a good job rather than having a good car. They're, they're, they're still a very sharp race team. They haven't lost that, but technically they, they've been lost up to now. And I think that they, it was actually quite rare last year that they were ever the second best car or the second fastest team on a weekend. They executed well a lot of the time and they were consistent through the year compared to the other teams in the chasing pack. But in the first part of the season, you said Aston Martin, were doing the, the, the better job with the fastest team outside of Red Bull. There were points where Ferrari got it together, but they were very inconsistent. And obviously McLaren finished the season brilliantly. So if you took, the, if you broke the season down into sort of little pockets of races, very rarely would you come away from one of those going, the Mercedes was the second best car for this run of races. But they just did a, a better job. I won't even say a good job. They just did a better job than the other teams across the balance of the season. That is important, but to them, it's much more important to have a fast car, and they haven't had that up to now. So I, I completely see why they've been so negative, even if some people think they've gone over the top because they still finished second. But also, it was a distant second. If, if you're, if you're sec it's the ultimate first of the losers last season because nobody was in Red Bull's league. So... It's not, it's not a second place to be proud of, and Mercedes aren't proud of it. No, and, and I absolutely agree with you. I think if someone was to ask me to pinpoint a specific moment in time where I felt Mercedes were probably second fastest at any point of last season, I'd have to say the Spanish Grand Prix, and, he, and when Russell and Hamilton got on the double podium. And, and even then, I would say that was very short-lived because, of course, McLaren brought in a raft of upgrades, which we saw at Silverstone catapulted them up the order. And then after that, it was really a combination of them and Ferrari and on occasion, Mercedes sharing that P2 spot. But as you rightly put, Mercedes did optimise what they had a bit better than the others. And that's why they finished second. But of course, there's no prize for second place. And, and Toto Wolff, I'm pretty certain, has been adamant on that. And they'll be hoping to turn that around. I think probably the next thing to ask on that one is why Mercedes are so far behind at, the, at this point in time relative to Red Bull. because. In 2022, they had the victory in Brazil, which of course was coupled by the 1-2 in the main race, so George Russell's first win in F1. And from that point, 
there was a sense of optimism that Mercedes may be starting to come to terms with this uh, pseudo flawed concept, if you like, the high pod concept. And it never really materialized in 2023, even by Mercedes' own admission when they brought in this new upgraded package in Monaco, which set the foundations for what they were going for in 2024. With that all being said, would we be, why, would we be naive in thinking that perhaps 2023 was actually a worse season for Mercedes than 2022, based on the premise that they, flawed, well, they, they followed a flawed concept that almost you know, kidded them into believing that they could actually achieve something in 2023, continuing with this flawed concept. Yeah, the in a way, that Brazil win in 22 turned out to be a problem because it gave them faith in what you called the flawed concept. So they decided there were two things that made them decide to carry on with that. One was the win. So they thought, actually, we are getting somewhere with this. The other was just the data they were seeing at the factory. They were They were too convinced uh, that the data they were seeing was telling them that the uh, concept they had had higher potential than going down what I think we can call a more Red Bull route. And they just stuck with it for too long. They, they, were, they were too focused on their data at the factory and were not listening to the drivers enough and were not just, just looking at what their eyes were telling them. I, I had a feeling in late 22, once you saw everybody moving towards the Red Bull uh, style of, of, of side pods. And obviously that's all linked to the floor. The side pods aren't the performance differentiator. The floor is once you saw everybody doing things that Red Bull were doing, I felt Mercedes had to ask themselves, all these other teams are not copying that blindly. They are, they are doing their own tests with their own facilities. They're looking at their own data and everybody else is getting results back that tell them that's the way to go. So if I was Mercedes, I'd have been looking and saying, why are we the only ones who think this is the way to go? And I think they just, there was a blind faith under the leadership of Mike Elliott, who's now gone, that the data was right. Uh, and they have admitted that the, the Brazil win just gave them that, that little bit of extra hope that actually there was, there was more they could get out of that. And they paid a massive price for that because even once they adapted the car mid-season in 2023 they were very limited with what they could do other than the cosmetic stuff we could see around you know big side pods um because too many other things they'd done with the car had locked them in until this winter when they can make more fundamental changes to the chassis see now that surprises me and you know as as often as i've thought of mercedes i've always looked at them as a team that you know, Total Wolf has said this a lot, leaves no stone unturned. They look at every fine detail. They learn as they go, even on their more difficult days. They always say that the days we lose are the days our rivals should be scared because that's when we lose them. That's when we learn the most. But for me to hear that and having seen that with Mercedes in 2023, I can't help but feel a little bit disappointed in them because I... As I said, it, to go off the basis of one great, fantastic weekend to justify a concept which was obviously giving them a lot of problems seems very un-Mercedes-like, if you ask me. It's almost as if they needed a reason to justify continuing with this flawed concept, and that was the golden ticket to do so. Almost an, a nice little excuse to say, well, I, I wouldn't have expected them to go the other way if they didn't win in Brazil. I think it's probably the contrast. Yeah, I suspect they'd have probably stuck with it. Any say, say they'd still been competitive in Brazil and not won. I think they'd have still gone with it because they were just they were utterly convinced um, by by what they were seeing uh, in in the factory, and they now know that was a mistake. The bigger concern for me is well, we'll get the answer in testing. I think do they understand these ground effect? rules because it's one thing to know what you're doing wrong it's quite another to know what the solution is especially in this era where the key performance generator for the cars is so hard to see what everyone else is doing okay the red ball gets lifted up in monaco and everyone can have a bit of a look at the floor but it's not like it was in a previous generation where so much of the performance was generated from the top body surfaces so you could see in great detail what everyone else was doing, what was really making the difference. That's not really the case now. So I think it makes, if you don't understand exactly what you're doing wrong, it makes it very hard to pick the direction that you want to go in. Yeah, very true. 
do you think there was a reluctance from Mercedes to try and uh, approach this from the Red Bull perspective, if you like? Because they've always been known as the team that would find performance on the opposite side of the spectrum to Red Bull. We always often, often associate them as being a low-rate team in the previous regulations, Red Bull going the other way, and they both find similar performance, but from opposite sides. Do you think that perhaps those past successes kind of influence Mercedes to feel like we can continue with this but do it our own way we don't have to not necessarily copy Red Bull but go down that concept route and try and find gains there yeah I think it's telling that the last two teams really to to go down the Red Bull route were Mercedes and Ferrari and there'll be an element of pride there of course there'll also be a big element of we're the other big teams if we now just try to copy them, we're always going to be a step behind them because they'll be developing while we're trying to work out what they're doing now. They also have the most resources. So particularly early in this rule set, there would have been a belief that there was more than one way to attack these rules. And there were more, as you said, with the previous rules, there was more than one way to generate performance under that rule set, even though most of the grid by the end of that had gone down the Red Bull route, which I think meant it was probably the the easier or the more straightforward way to generate performance. I think what Mercedes and Ferrari have realized now and what they've admitted is that actually there aren't as many ways to generate performance under this rule set. And they have, they've learned their, their lessons. So I think they will, they both tried to move that way a bit uh, last year, but that was with uh, compromised car architecture. So there's only so much you can do so they can make bigger changes this winter. But again, they've still got to make these changes and know why they're doing it. So I think until the cars hit the track, even for them, there will be an element of of guesswork or believing that they're gambling here and going down this route. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more with that one. Um, In terms of the car characteristics, you mentioned the architecture. Um, I think it was your colleague, Ed Straw, who dubbed the car erratic, poor in slower corners and quite unstable at the rear in the faster ones. Are those the main characteristics Mercedes need to address in 2024 with the host of changes that James Allison has mentioned that they'll be looking to achieve? Yeah, the the rear instability, I think, is a big one, especially for Lewis Hamilton, who can handle, uh, he can handle a lively car, but he'll want it to be a predictable car. And it's got to be lively at the right points in the corner. I don't think the Mercedes has has been that up to now. Lewis obviously wants changes to the driving position or the cockpit position. He think he feels the Mercedes this uh, in 2023 was too far forward. Um, so he didn't like that either. I think they are going to change that. But he asked for that to be changed for 2023, and it wasn't. And I think it was very telling that Lewis vocalised that. You know, he could have kept that quiet, but I think at that point he was pretty, pretty down about how bad his car was. So. Like I say, they they know what's wrong. Now, we as neutrals have to hope that they know how to fix that and they'll be hoping that they know how to fix that. There are, there are concerns. Uh, we've spoken to journalists who are a bit closer to Mercedes uh, or have good contacts there. Uh, other journalists in the media centre have said there are still some doubts about if Mercedes truly understand uh, what makes a ground effect car tick. Um, and like I say, I think we will find out very soon, uh, probably testing, if not testing, then probably qualifying for the first race. Uh, we will know very quickly if they finally understand this rule set or not. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one of the areas that James Allison mentioned that Mercedes were looking to introduce was a new suspension. And from what I'd seen and from what I'd heard from journalists like yourself and others, that that was an area that Adrian knew in particular at Red Bull focused quite heavily on with these new regulations and perhaps it's no surprise that that's an area Mercedes want to focus on a bit more given that Red Bull have been so successful in that department. Yeah so Adrian revealed that in early 2022 to Mark Hughes actually in an interview and it was really it was a quite a low-key comment where you know he was asked you know which bits of this car like can you say are yours or which bits did you prioritize because it's a big team no one person designs an entire F1 car anymore and Adrian just kind of really low key went, oh, I kind of I fo- focused on the suspension. There was a few bits there. You know, I can say that was that was mine. And it actually took the watching world and I think even a lot of the teams a long time to realize how important that suspension was to the Red Bulls performance, because 
Adrian knew from his previous experience at the start of the 80s with ground effects, last time it was in F1, he knew that ride and platform control was almost going to be more important, probably was more important than peak downforce. So he focused on, can I get this car to sit in the right window in as many different states and as many different speeds as possible? Kind of going back to, to what he mastered when Williams had active suspension, because active suspension was all about keeping the aerodynamic platform perfectly flat in all states uh, so that you had the, the most from your aero at all times. And it's, it's kind of similar to that. He wanted the car to be in the right position relative to the road at all times, and that would allow the downforce they had to be maximised all the time. So Red Bull never actually focused on trying to generate the most downforce. They wanted a level of downforce that they could access at all times, and Newey's uh, suspension was key to that. And I think it's very telling that as teams have updated their cars, they've been making suspension tweaks. But as you've hinted at there, I think we're going to see much bigger suspension changes from certain teams uh, this season because you need to do other things with your car and with your chassis in particular to allow you to to maximise the suspension in the way Red Bull have. Exactly. And in the same way, it's also why, you know, changing the side pods on Mercedes by actually bringing some on wasn't necessarily going to be the silver bullet that everyone was thinking it may be when they made that huge change in Monaco. And despite Mercedes telling everyone that it wouldn't. Um, a comment you made about Lewis Hamilton there, I do want to point on, because this was something that I found quite interesting. He was quite outspoken about Mercedes not necessarily listening to him with the 2023 car. I think it was centred around the seating position in the cockpit where I think Mercedes was a bit further forward, was it, than, yeah. the other, than their rivals, particularly Max Verstappen at Red Bull, of course. Um, was that, is that surprising to hear that from a driver? Is that normal that a team would often go down the approach that they think is best rather than necessarily listen to the feedback of their drivers, especially one as experienced and as illustrious in their career as Lewis Hamilton? I think that's the surprise. You know, if, <clears throat> if Logan Sargent asked for something at Williams, he's probably less likely to get it than Lewis would normally be at Mercedes. The surprise is obviously Lewis is, has been an in, integral part of the Mercedes championship winning team uh, machine for a decade. So I imagine he was probably surprised that he wasn't listened to as well. So I can only assume that this comes back to what I said earlier, that Mercedes believed in their own data that they didn't need to make the change Lewis wanted. I'm sure they'll make it this winter uh, because you know, Lewis, like I said, it was very, I felt it was significant that Lewis came out with that. It doesn't surprise me that a driver would say behind closed doors, I asked for this and you haven't done it. I still don't like the car. The car's still not good enough. Why haven't we got it? The significant thing for me, and I, I credit Lewis for this and I, I credit Mercedes for rarely sort of gagging their drivers. You know, there's, there's, there's very little pushback. I think Mercedes is a team that understands that actually these things or, or being a bit more honest doesn't do that much damage really okay it's given us all a, an, an almost a negative mercedes story to talk about but it's one based in truth and it's one that's part of their journey to getting back to the front which they hope to do next year so they've been happy to talk about it as well but it is interesting you would think that whatever lewis hamilton asks for he gets and it's interesting that he didn't get that one so like I say, I, I, I can just imagine that Lewis said, oh, I think we need this. And the team have gone, no, if we do X, Y and Z that we've uh, identified at the factory, we don't think we need that. And then Lewis has got in the car. He doesn't like it and he doesn't like the driving position either. I mean, it was also interesting that it coincided in a period where we didn't know if Lewis Hamilton was going to commit the team to the team in the medium term. You know, he was still having those contract negotiations, which we all know he is at the forefront of. Uh, when it comes to those and you know not to be too cynical about it but perhaps it was a sort of message to Mercedes saying look you know if I if you want me to stick around and try and be that driver that takes this team back to championship winning ways you're going to need to start listening to me otherwise I may decide to call it a day perhaps but um, maybe the more cynical of us might think that you know it was a tactic but more importantly it's about making sure the car is as fast as it could possibly be um, in terms of uh, the you know, the more technical structure. James Allison coming back to the team was a big coup for them, obviously replaced, subsequently replacing Mike Elliott. Um, how essential do you think that James Allison's 
technical leadership will be to Mercedes now that he has confirmed that he's staying with the team for the medium term. Yeah, he signed a new contract, didn't he? I think uh, that's really important. And the key phrase you used there was technical leadership. It's not purely about James coming back and going, right, I'm going to design the car. Like I said to you earlier, nobody comes in and designs everything on the car anymore. But Alison is clearly a great leader. And I think it's very, it was very telling that they made that change because I think it was an admission that the the methods they were using and the, the things they were keeping faith in in their processes under Mike Elliott's leadership weren't working. Um, and I think there was clearly a feeling that maybe Elliott's very highly rated in that team and in F1, but clearly that role wasn't the right role for him. It's also really interesting. Alison had been at the, the coalface of F1 technical leadership and F1 design for a long time. He'd, he'd backed away from that. He wasn't as actively involved day to day. I think it's great for Mercedes that in their hour of need, it's longer than an hour now, is it two years of need, uh, he was willing to come back and take that challenge on. And he's been talking to the media a bit over the winter and has said some really interesting stuff, actually, about how much of a kick he gets out of, of the challenge. And I actually, I suspect that the only thing that's brought him back is the fact that Mercedes are in trouble and he likes the idea of coming in and trying to do something with that. If they'd, if Elliot had, if things had gone well under Elliot and then he resigned or, or just decided he didn't want to do F1 anymore, wanted to back away from, you know, it's a, it takes a big toll on your life working F1 full time. If he just moved away while things are going well, I doubt Alison would have gone, yep, I want back in. But it's, it's the challenge of having such a big problem to fix that I think appeals to him. So it's great for Mercedes. Alison's got a proven track record. And I think they did need some, some fresh ideas and some fresh thinking because as we've discussed a bit up to now, there's very little evidence up to this point that they understand these rules. So they probably did need someone else to come in and, and, and take a much closer look at it and see, see if they can work out what the, the magic formula is here because they haven't had it up to now. Very much so. I think the word he used to describe uh, the team was fragmented in mm. terms of their collaboration. And I suppose for those that aren't in the know, how essential is that? Because I wouldn't have expected to describe the Mercedes team and the factory as fragmented or disjointed in terms of their plans to try and achieve success again. But it was quite an eye opener to hear that from James himself saying that it was fragmented and now it's starting to come together as we're working on this new project. Yeah, that um, that was another great admission from Mercedes. Again, something they didn't need to bring out in public. Obviously, it's been misinterpreted in some places as, you know, kind of there's lots of infighting behind the scenes. He, he was keen to point out that's not what he meant. What he meant was just the departments weren't working together. And the way he explained it was because they were in such trouble, Every department was going, what can we do? How, how can we find the solution in our bit of the car or the process that we work on? So he just said everybody kind of went head down trying to, to find the fix themselves rather than everybody coming together and going, right, with all of this incredible workforce that we have and all this knowledge and, and all, this, uh, all, this, all this data, all these resources, how do we pull all of this together and find a direction to go in? Whereas actually everybody went, right, we've all got to try and fix it. And they all kind of went off in, in different directions. So that comes back to the leadership thing that we were mentioning before. That's clearly been a big thing he's had to do already is to say, look, it's no individual's responsibility to fix our problems. Everybody's got to come together and let's try and try and work through this as a bigger group rather than lots of individual departments all trying to be the one that finds the solution. Yeah, very much so. Um, in terms of the in-season development, because Toto Wolf was, you know, made some very interesting comments about the fact that Mercedes were quite restricted in their in-season development because they wanted to bring in a new chassis, they wanted to bring in a new monocoque, but the cost cap restrictions prevented them from doing so. Same situation at Ferrari to a certain degree. Also, Fred Fasser mentioned in that. Do those comments suggest that the cost cap is starting to be a relative success in terms of closing the pecking order? in Formula 1, keeping the pack tightly close together with, of course, the notable exception of Max Verstappen and Red Bull, of course. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> behind Max, there is evidence that all of that stuff's working. The, the, the aerodynamic testing restrictions are working as well. The, the, the spread 
between second to tenth of the teams is probably closer than it's ever been. So it is working. And yeah, in a pre-cost cap world, Mercedes in particular, as you say, maybe Ferrari, there'd have been a B-spec chassis mid-season, say Silverstone or something like that. It would have cost them a fortune. It would probably let them up the order. It would have left a team like, it would have made it harder for McLaren. It would have left a team like Aston Martin reeling even more than they were when their development went awry in the summer. So that would have got them closer to Red Bull but it would have strung out the pack behind. So it is clearly working. All the teams are mindful of, of the cost cap and have to be careful with what they spend. And it also gives us a really interesting insight into what we should expect from Mercedes. Because as you say, they've been telling us for a long time now, we need to do a new chassis because that's going to open up some of the areas that we couldn't fix on this car, even with in-season aerodynamic development. So... The great thing about that is it gives us all something to look for when the car comes out, whether they show us <clears throat> the full car at the launch or if we have to wait for day one of testing. Well, it almost paints the picture of the season ahead when we get to Bahrain, as it did last year, quite emphatically. And we often joked about that based on what we saw in 2022, about how dominant Max would be. I don't think anyone foresaw what we saw in 2023. But um, I, I, I often fondly remember the days pre-Coscat when we had the unlimited budgets for the three big teams in particular. And Mercedes would turn up with an A and B spec car in pre-season testing. I mean, that was taking that to all new extremes. But I think for the likes of McLaren, I think Zach Brown was quite supportive of the cost cap measures in that in that regard, that they have been quite successful in allowing teams, uh, like or preventing teams, I should say, like the big three, from being able to just spend what they want and bring in a brand new car when things aren't working out for them. But um, it's never a guarantee for success. There's so much lead time that goes on that a lot of people probably don't appreciate. Um, and it's not as simple as just turning up six races in with a brand new car and all of a sudden you're back in the fight again. Yeah, uh, it used to be like that. Um... If you think McLaren, McLaren did one of the most famous B-spec cars uh, in 2004 when um, the MP4 19 was, was rubbish and Adrian Newey knew what to do to fix it and then set about it. Within a few months, it was on the track um, and was a massive step forward. So it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because when Red Bull are so far ahead, it's easy to say, oh, it's a shame that the other big teams couldn't make their changes in season and close the fight up there and then. But I think long-term it is better for F1. There's obviously, we need to see if Red Bull reach a point of diminishing returns at any point. Obviously they're telling us that they will. Um, but then you've got a team like McLaren saying they see no uh, sort of imminent ceiling to the amount of performance they're finding. And also Red Bull did so, Red Bull, brought so little development to last year's car. So there is a fear amongst the, the chasing pack that all the development work they did was sat there waiting, is waiting for 2024. And this happened, we heard about this happening at the end of 2022, where the 2022 Red Bull was still slightly overweight. And they did, uh, there was rumours that they um, had come up with a lighter chassis for the second half of the year. And because they were winning by then and Ferrari had gone to pieces, they never brought it in because they didn't need to. They just sat there and then it could be a development that came in for the following year. We obviously saw what a massive step the 2023 Red Bull was. So there's every chance. I'm sure it's not something like a lightweight chassis again, but there could be a lot of aero development. Red Bull won't have been standing still while all the other teams have been scrambling to catch up to what Red Bull had been doing for the first two years of the rules. It is quite a scary prospect when you think about it from a competitive perspective because you almost take for granted about how difficult it is to try and catch and overhaul the team that is currently performing the best, has arguably the best driver in the sport at this point in time. And the assumption is that you just, as long as you do a really, really good job, you'll beat them, but they're not going to be sitting still. They've always been the team that's never really sat still. And if you're not ahead of them at the start of the season, chances are you're probably not going to beat them. Yeah. And the, the fascinating thing will just be once, once those other teams get close enough that they can cause Red Bull a few more problems, as we saw McLaren do on the tracks that suited the McLaren in the second half of last year, they could, you know, they could get in amongst it, especially with 
Max not really having Perez backing him up enough. So you'd quite often end up um, with, you know, two McLarens chasing uh, a Red Bull or two Ferraris battling a Red Bull. If they can all get closer, it doesn't mean, as you say, they're not going to leapfrog Red Bull. That's probably not going to be possible with one winter of development and then a bit of in-season development because Red Bull won't stand still. So (laughs) all we can really hope for is that it just, it closes up and that, uh, that will make things like strategy more interesting. If the Red Bull is still vulnerable in qualifying because they focus so much on it being a car that works perfectly in the race, you might occasionally see people out qualify Max, then he's got to race his way past them. Uh, I think it's on all of those teams to just make Red Bull's life more difficult. I, I agree with you that I think it's too much to ask for anyone to vault Red Bull at this point. Um, but it shouldn't be too much to ask, given the amount of resources they've all got and the uh, the number of people they have, the money that they spend. Obviously, they're all spending up to the maximum of the cost cap. They should be able to get a lot closer than they've got up to this point. Of course, and, and assuming that Red Bull are on the precipice of hitting that ceiling of ultimate performance, as you know, some people, including Red Bull themselves, may have alluded to, and not taking into account the jump that they may make because they've held back on the develop or introducing the developed parts that they've had for some time because they were afforded that luxury. There is that hope that teams like what Aston Martin did or like what McLaren did in season, they can make a huge step forward, which brings them a lot closer to Red Bull, not necessarily vaulting them, but something to make the championship a bit more enticing or make Red Bull have to work a bit harder for the 21 wins out of 22 that they got last season, for example. But, um, there is that hope, of course. That's why we come back every time to watch it. Um, another thing on development, before we start talking about the drivers, of course, uh, there was a lot to be said about some of the stories that have been coming out, not, not, just, not just at Mercedes, but other teams as well, about the metrics around how much performance they've possibly gained over the winter development. Some people have rubbished those stories and say, you know, you can't take anything too seriously until testing. I think... Um, if I may, I was listening to one of the races podcasts recent. I think your colleague, Scott Mitchell Malman, and you can tell I'm a friend of the, a fan of the race because um, I'm literally, I think I'm betting Gary Anderson away from completing the bingo card here in terms <laughs> of mentions. But he made an interesting point about some of those theories where a lot of people, not necessarily working in the same teams, but the work at other teams, information can be shared quite loosely. They don't all, I imagine they don't all sign NDAs or stuff like that, but what my point is, is that he was alluding to the fact that these stories just don't come from thin air. They're not always manifested out of nothing. There is some element of truth to them, even if some of the figures or some of the metrics that were quoted might be a little bit exaggerated. What is your take on those sort of stories that you hear during the winter break where we talk, we hear about teams may have made certain gains in performance compared to where they were last year? Yeah, it depends. It depends where they're coming from and also how many of them there are. So if, if, if word gets back to you from one place or one person, oh, so-and-so might have done something good. If you don't hear that from anywhere else, you tend not to put that much weight on it. So I think the, the point you're referencing that Scott made, that was about Aston. That was a big talking point around many teams in the paddock. Because, yeah, all these, all these mechanics, and it's a, it's a traveling circus. They all see each other all the time. A lot of them have, have left teams where they've worked together. They're all still friends. So, yeah, they chit-chat, and that's where a lot of that information comes from. And there was a groundswell of that information flying around last year that Aston Martin felt they had found something. It proved to be true. I'm sure there's been plenty of examples where that hasn't been true. Um, and I think you also always have to take with a pinch of salt whatever people are saying publicly on the record so it's it is surprising if a team gives out a number like you say if they say oh we think we found a quarter of a second it's also that number doesn't mean anything until you know what everyone else has found um because everyone goes forward so it's it tends to be at this time of year it's you're listening out for all the whispers and you look for patterns so if the, if the same whisper keeps coming back to you from different places, you start to feel it's got a bit more behind it. We were hear stuff all the time about like one person has heard from a mate at one team that, oh, Alpine have, have found something over the winter. If that, if that doesn't circulate, you're unlikely to see that appear sort of in the media or anything that we talk about because it's just, it's just, it's just one, it's one piece of gossip. So 
Uh, it does take a bit for gossip to 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 leak out, and I think even the Aston stuff, it was being talked about on the grapevine. There wasn't that much momentum until we saw the car, and it looked like a good step from what they had the year before. And then we quite quickly worked out in testing that yeah, there was something really going on here, and uh, and and Fernando Alonso doesn't tend to be shy about it when he's got. I was going to say when he's got a good car, he doesn't tend to be shy about it whether he's got a good or a bad car. No, he's not, absolutely. And uh, I think it's more telling when teams are quite open to admitting that their development hasn't gone well in season, which of course is worrying news. You don't want to be bragging about that, but those tend to be more credible than, I think I saw one the other day where someone, I'm, I'm pretty sure James Allison didn't say this, but there was someone was quoting on social media, I know the most reliable of sources, um, that Mercedes had found two to two and a half seconds which I'm thinking, is that real? Because that's either right on the cusp of where they expect Red Bull to be, which would be great if it were true, or they've completely obliterated the field with something that no one's even thought of. And I thought, surely that can't be true. But I guess we'll find out in testing how accurate these reports turned out to be. Yeah, that, that's a very big number, um, especially at a time where the rules are quite restrictive. So a massive game-changing gain is going to be quite hard for anyone to find. And that's actually something that Alison has talked about as well, just realising, as I said earlier, there's a, there appears to really only be one way to maximise these cars. So the chance of somebody finding something magic that Red Bull haven't thought of um, that takes a massive step forward is unlikely. Uh, you would never say impossible because F1, F1 car design history is full of things that nobody had thought of until they appeared for the first time. It's just, it's getting so much harder to do that sort of thing now. So you are seeing things like uh, Adrian Newey's clever suspension is the way to do it. And, uh, you know, it's all about Venturi tunnels in the floor and, and that sort of thing. Now it's quite hard in these rules. It's about maximizing what's available to you rather than coming up with something revolutionary. And that's actually probably a route that Mercedes got stuck in for too long. I think Newey had even said that Red Bull looked at the zero side pod concept early in their car development uh, for these rules and thought, no, that's not going to work for us. So, um, well, I think was... Gunther Steiner said that, that Haas had looked at that as well, yeah. which I thought was more telling if Haas had decided not to go down there. Obviously, they were going to follow Ferrari's thing, yeah. but still. Yeah. and. It was also, I don't think Red Bull went that far with it. So Newey's surprise, I think, I think he had a fear that if Mercedes have committed to this, they must have found something that we couldn't see. And obviously it turned out that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, well, we hoped that was the case, but um, I think it was quite telling at the start of testing in 2022. And I think most people probably picked this up on Drive to Survive when all the drivers were surrounding the Mercedes and thinking, what on earth is that? Yeah. It's either one or two things. Unfortunately for them, it was uh, the not-so-fun one. <laughs> but no, that's a fair point. I mean, for me, when I heard that story about two to two and a half seconds, I thought, well, either Mercedes have found something amazing, and this is crazy, or they've decided, forget this, we're turning up with a W11, we're just going to drive for the vibes. Don't care if we get disqualified. <laughs> we just want to prove we're quicker. Bring back that nostalgia. But um, a quick one on Toto Wolf. His position at Mercedes is quite unique. Um, one of only two, I believe, team principals, him and Christian Horner, that are either an owner or a CEO within that outfit. Um, I might be wrong in that. But my point being is that Toto is in a very unique position where he pretty much decides his future being a third owner of uh, the Mercedes Daimler Group. Now, because of that, you may think that he might be immune to being under scrutiny in his role as team principal or you know, running the team. Should that be the case, though, if Mercedes have another struggle in 2024? Uh, well, even though, obviously, as you say, he, he is part owner of the team. So there are jokes when he signs a new contract, the jokes that he's negotiated with himself to stay in his job. Uh, but, there, you know, these, there'll still be a board. We still answer. Well, there's, there's two other owners um, in Daimler and Ineos. So they've got a say as well. So if they're... If there was a feeling that a change of leadership was needed, I think the other power brokers in that team would take it to Toto. And I suspect that he would go along with it. I don't think he would fight. If, if the other people, if the other decision makers in that team felt it was time for a change, I don't think he would fight it. I also think that 
he doesn't like the idea of bowing out while the team's failing. I, I, I can imagine that back at the, towards the end of the previous rule set, it felt like Mercedes were gearing up for uh, a new leadership structure post Toto. And I think that's gone away because they're struggling. So there'll be an element of ego in that. You know, he, he, he won't want kind of the final point of his legacy to be, well, you left Mercedes when they were still struggling. He'll want to have that kind of badge of honour of, well, I, that we turned it around under my leadership and then I rode off into the, into the sunset. Uh, but but there, there's, there's pride in that as well. And I can imagine that he doesn't, he doesn't want to be seen to, uh, to be walking away while they're struggling. Because it, he won't want to look like he's abandoning the ship or that he's going, this isn't my problem anymore. Someone else can come and fix it. So a bit like Alison being enticed back because they're struggling. I suspect the reason Toto has recommitted to keep leading the team in the same way. Obviously, when he's no longer the team boss, he's still going to own a third of the team. He's not going to disappear. But I do think that the struggles are the reason that Mercedes aren't making those changes that it really felt like they were they were hinting to us that all that stuff was coming in kind of 2020 and 21 you know Toto started to miss some races there was all this talk about who's going to be the next team boss there was rumors about Jerome D'Ambrosio that's what he was brought in for to be to be geared up to potentially be that uh, there were race weekends where Allison was was put up in all the team boss slots for talking to the media and that sort of thing uh, and that's that's all changed. And I think all of these things are a legacy of the fact that Mercedes have had a wayward couple of years. Very much. And um, it's interesting because I I can respect Toto wanting to stick around to try and be a part of this rejuvenation of Mercedes because he's been so used to the success, you know, coming in, replacing Ross Braun, changing the dynamic Mercedes to let it almost run itself with him at the helm and let the experts handle it. He'll delegate responsibility where it's needed and offer that leadership, um, mostly from the business side. But it did culminate in that success, successful period they've had over the last, well, the eight years before the new regs came in. There is an element of pride there that I suppose that you don't want to leave a sinking ship or leave when things are difficult. You want to prove to everyone that you know you can turn this around. And I suppose perhaps that is what he's waiting for, perhaps, to put Mercedes back on top again, where he feels they should be, and then perhaps move on and let someone like Jerome D'Ambrosio, or maybe even James Vowles, an outside chance, see how he gets on at Williams. I always felt perhaps he was a potential natural successor. So it's worth keeping an eye on that. And then, of course, on the Ineos front, I suppose we should uh, suggest in that perhaps you might have a bit of a breather on that side, because I'm sure Sir Jim Ratcliffe is too busy trying to fix Manchester United. Yeah, he's got a bit on his plate. Yeah, just a bit. Um, On the driver front, because we should talk about the drivers, I think that is quite relevant. We know what we get with Lewis Hamilton. He's signed up until the end of 2025. Whether he continues on into the new regs in 2026, I suppose we'll have to wait and see, but there's no reason why I don't think he wouldn't. Um, We know what we're going to get from him. Is there pressure, however, on George Russell? Because the qualifying metrics were suggesting that he was not only just as good as Lewis, but technically slightly a tiny bit better. Um, but we're talking fractions here, like literally the closest delta between any two drivers within the same team on the grid. But in the race, there was a clear gulf between the two in how they catered and how they facilitated the issues with the car. That's We saw Hamilton try and compete more often than not for a podium at least. And Russell sometimes was either up there or he was nowhere. Yeah, and I think he made he made more mistakes. Um than he would have liked. And he's, he's very open that he was disappointed with his, with his season. I, says, I think that second year was a bit of a wake-up call for him. He kind of, the first year with Mercedes, okay, the car wasn't great, but he did a good job in difficult circumstances, perhaps benefited a bit from Lewis, maybe struggling to come to terms with finally having a Mercedes that wasn't great. Um, but I don't think George kicked on the way he would have wanted to in the second year. so. I think he goes into this year with a bit more concern <coughs> around uh, doing as good a job as he can. He's probably seen a level from Lewis that he hadn't seen before as well. I think Lewis was a bit more committed to the cause in 2023. So George was still quick on his on uh, plenty of occasions, but there were just results that were thrown away through silly mistakes. Singapore being a great example. So 
he has got to uh, step things up in, in year three with Mercedes. He's got to get uh, closer to Lewis's level. I think he now has a better idea of just how high Lewis's level is. And the big thing is cut out the mistakes. Do you think that playing devil's advocate here, do you think with George Russell last season, we saw in the earlier parts, I think Jeddah was a prime example where there seemed to be more of an interest in the politics side of things at Mercedes, where there was, you know, stories flying, flying around that perhaps Mercedes were looking to invest more in George as the future. And perhaps that torch, if you like, was being passed over by Mercedes from Hamilton to Russell himself. Do you think there was too much of a focus on that, perhaps from Russell's side and, and, Perhaps more should be focused on just driving the car to a degree what that Lewis can do. Maybe, maybe when we don't know how George saw this going in his head, maybe he thought that by this point, Lewis would have stuck around for a couple of years, maybe won another championship. And then Lewis would, as you say, pass the torch and it would be George's team. Actually, they've struggled. Lewis has stuck around because Lewis wants another championship. And it's probably not following the playbook that George had in his head. I do think it's also telling, you mentioned uh, a few races there, so there was the things like Suzuka where they had the big battle and George was very quick to get on the radio and, and, and question team tactics and are we racing together here um, or are we racing each other? He didn't seem to like any of that. Like all drivers though, he was only interested in that really when it was would have been to his benefit to be left alone, to not be attacked or to be let through. But I think it showed he is, I think he is a driver who wears his heart on his sleeve, certainly in the car, but even with his honesty out of the car. Not everybody likes that, but I thought George, he didn't do a good enough job at times last year, but at least he fronted up to that. Um, and some drivers see that as a risk to be that honest because it, it draws more people's attention to the fact that you struggled because you're talking about it. But I suspect George is probably mentally tough enough to deal with that. But a bit like the team, we spent most of this chat talking about the fact that the team has got to deliver. It's one thing for them to tell us that they know they're getting it wrong. Now they've got to deliver on what they say, uh, well, what they believe they can get right. It's the same for George. He's told us that he didn't do a good enough job last year. He's told us that he made too many mistakes. Now he's got to put all that right next year or this year. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, perhaps we should consider praising drivers for being a bit more honest about it. I mean, I, I know we do this about Oscar Piastri. I've done it on this show. I know you guys do it at the race. You know, you, you up and up, well, not up in, up in arms, but everyone's quite favourable towards Piastri over his brute honesty sometimes when things are difficult. And we're talking about a guy who just had his rookie season. So there's no reason why we can't say that about George Russell. Okay, expectations are a bit higher, but we know Mercedes are struggling. We know that unless you're someone crazy like Lewis Hamilton, it's not always going to be so straightforward to overcome these issues. And even Lewis, you know, it was only this year where we saw him really produce some of the best driving we've seen from him in a while. 2022, you could probably make the case that Lewis probably had one of his poorer seasons behind the wheel. Yeah, and I, I think that was, <clears throat> maybe it was a legacy of how he lost the championship in 2021, but I think it was more just down to probably the shock factor of Mercedes has got it wrong. Uh, the car wasn't nice to drive. You know, he, he was in pain after Baku. Like his back was hurting. So you've got this car that isn't very good and is physically punishing you when you drive it. So... I think after years, you know, Lewis went into every season in the mindset of being geared up to fight for a championship, even in the years where, you know, Ferrari and Vettel would start the year very well. Lewis, the whole time would be, I can't leave any scraps on the table. So on the days where Vettel's winning, I've got to make sure I'm maximising my result. Then he went into uh, 2022 feeling more like probably thinking it doesn't really matter what I do here. The cars are way off. The, the fastest cars, they, they, they couldn't really, on most weekends, they couldn't trouble Red Bull and Ferrari on merit. So that was probably demoralising and just a shock for him to, him to get used to. And I just felt that he kind of rewired his brain for 2023. And that's why Russell came up against a, a fiercer teammate uh, in, in the same garage. And I think that was an eye-opener for Russell as well. I very much agree. And hopefully we'll see a much more mental, well, not mentally strong, but much more competitive George Russell as a result of that. In terms of Hamilton's future, as we've already pointed out, 
he's signed up now until the end of 2025, is now the onus on Mercedes, in, if they want to keep Hamilton beyond that contract, is the onus on them to produce a car that is capable of challenging for a world championship. Not necessarily winning one, because we know how good Red Bull are, but it's been, was it now, since Jeddah 21, where Hamilton last won a Grand Prix? That probably has to change if he wants to stay with his team and extend his F1 career. Yeah, I'm not sure. <clears throat> Only Lewis could tell us if, if they need to provide a championship challenging car. I think right now he just wants to see a trajectory that he can believe in. You know, he needs to see Mercedes prove that they are understanding this and just just real progress because there's not been that up to now. I find it unlikely that anyone will probably beat Verstappen to a championship before the rules change for 2026. But I definitely think that if Mercedes are going in the right direction, I can't imagine a driver in Hamilton's position. No driver is going to want to bail out at the end of 2025 when things could be really shaken up in 2026. So I think Lewis would be looking at that going, not just Mercedes might get it right, but Red Bull might get it wrong. They'll be doing their own, their own engine by then. Maybe something will go wrong there. I, th I think the regret would be huge if he walks away having not won a championship in 24 or 25, and then Mercedes are great again and are at the front in 26, he would just wish that he'd hung on for an extra year. So I think the rule change that's coming for 2026 is going to be a massively influential uh, circumstance across the whole driver market because people are going to want to be in the right place. There's an element of guesswork around that, but you're also not going to want to walk away in case that rule change is what makes your team uh, vault to the front. Yeah, and one thing we do know is that Hamilton is usually very good at making those decisions and being in the right place at the right time. Um, final question, I think the best way to sign this one off, Glenn. Um, we've kind of alluded to this already in terms of what Mercedes should probably be targeting, but what does a good season look like for Mercedes in 2024? Not necessarily the constructor's position, because I think we could agree anything less than second would be a failure automatically. But what does a good 2024 look like for Mercedes? They've got to, <clears throat> they've got to close the gap to Red Bull performance-wise, and that's, that's Sunday performance, really. Um, and they've got to win some races. Uh, I, don't, I don't expect a champion a championship challenge that would obviously be it'd be a pleasant surprise if any team um can give us a championship fight just from a neutrals perspective but yeah mercedes need to get back to being in the hunt for wins pick a few up i, I can't imagine um either of their drivers uh can can beat max to a championship and can beat red bull but uh, you know what is it one one grand prix win in two years Red Bull are obviously hoovering them all up, but Mercedes, if they can close the gap and pick up a few wins, you know, maybe j just a handful, um, that, that's real progress and that gives them something to cling to. And, and it, would suggest, <clears throat> it would suggest to us that they have finally understood uh, these rules because there's a lot of doubt on that front that they've got to eliminate um, this year. So, yeah. It sounds weird, doesn't it? For a team as, as big and as grand, as successful as Mercedes, for us to just be saying, win a few races, just, just, just win a few. That's all we're asking. It doesn't sound like you're asking much, but when you've got such a formidable opponent as Red Bull and the Red Bull-Max Verstappen combination, that actually is quite a significant step if you can take it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to uh, sign this all off. And hopefully for Mercedes' sake, that is what 2024 looks like for them. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be a, a very, very good season, even if Red Bull dominate like they have done, which I think we all expect them to do. Um, as long as the chasing pack are a bit closer to them, I think that's all we can really ask for. But um, it's been great to have you along, Glenn. Really, really appreciate your time and insight on this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And of course, I'll make sure to leave all of the places, all of the uh, links and everything in the show notes where you can follow not only Glenn but also the race itself and I will definitely be leaving a link to the race V10 bring back the V10 podcast of course because anyone like me that longs for the return of the V8s or V10s or anything that doesn't come with a turbocharger or anything like that we know that's not very very likely if at all I definitely recommend that you check out that podcast because it's really really good and um, 
I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have got coming up very, very soon. Um, but as always, guys, thanks for tuning in. Hope that you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back soon with the final episode in a session, the challenges for Red Bull, and that will be Ferrari, which I'm sure will be a very interesting one indeed. But until next time, guys, take care. As always, please stay safe, and we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And remember, as always, if you're not first, you're probably DNF1. Take care. Podcast Network.